All right, let me begin by playing the Captain Obvious card. 2020 has been challenging in numerous ways. There are so many questions about how to respond to COVID-19. Has Mount Vernon been too rigid or too lax? Should we ignore government recommendations for the sake of liberty or follow them for the sake of conscience? A neighbor. Should church members be prodded to gather again for the sake of fellowship or given space for the sake of conscience? This has also been a year of racial conflict reminiscent of the riotous era of the 1960s. Many believe Americans have been complacent in the battle against racism. For some, acknowledging systemic racism is as simple as saying water is wet. For others, the phrase systemic racism is the fruit of a godless Marxist ideology. Adding insult to injury, we've endured the most divisive presidential election of my lifetime. President Trump elevates prosperity gospel preachers and has coarsened our civil discourse. President-elect Biden is a Roman Catholic prepared to marshal his office in support of abortion and the redefinition of gender. And all of this conflict that has been swirling around all of us this past year can leave Christians a little unsure, a little wobbly, the way at least I feel when I disembark a carnival ride sort of ready to throw up. So, with that pleasant image, let's end the year reminded that God's Word is granite. It is sure. It is stable. It is firm. It is reliable. It is sufficient. It is well worth your time. Our final passage for 2020 is Psalm 33. All of the Psalms in our Bible are divided into five books. Psalm 33 is, if you will, one chapter in Book 1, which is comprised by Psalms 1 through 41. Now, when it comes to Psalm 33, no author is listed. But since David wrote about, since he's listed as the author of about 38 of the 41 Psalms in Book 1, it's probable that he penned Psalm 33 as well. Now, some have suggested that Psalm 33 was a psalm written to help the Israelites usher in the new year. We can't be sure of that, but let's go ahead and use it that way anyway to help turn the page on 2020 and enter 2021. Now, I have called Psalm 33 the psalm of the year. It is the psalm that we need. And if you haven't been able to piece together from the prayers and the comments that have been made this morning already, it is a psalm of joy. Now, there are three points about joy I want to make from this psalm this morning. First, the nature of joy. What is joy like? Second, the object of joy. What is joy in? And third, the source of joy. Where is joy from? 
All right, those are the three points to the sermon. First, the nature of joy. What is joy like? If you have your Bibles, make sure they're opened to Psalm 33. Let me begin by reading the first three verses. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. David wrote this psalm for the righteous and for the upright, verse 1. In other words, this is a psalm for believers, for God's people, for those who have been declared righteous by the kindness of God, for those who have been called to be upright by his law, by his word. And David exhorts us to rejoice in God. In the case of the Israelites, he exhorts those who have been saved from bondage in Egypt to rejoice in God. And we are to rejoice as well as men and women saved from bondage to our own sin. Now, verse 12 makes this even more clear. We read, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. This is a psalm written for those chosen by God, uh, called God's inheritance, God's heritage. A, a psalm for people who call upon the Lord, who depend upon the Lord, who identify the Lord as their God and the God of all creation as their Lord. It's a psalm for those chosen by God. And how do God's chosen people rejoice? They shout for joy in the Lord. That's what the text says. They give thanks to the Lord with all sorts of musical instruments. Verse 2, there have been long debates throughout church history about whether or not this psalm is prescriptive for the playing of instruments as we have so righteously done this morning whether this is simply the uh, Old Testament Israelites taking advantage of what they were free to do, recognizing that there was no prescription for instrumentation in the law that Moses gave the people. But either way, the point is clear. We're to give thanks to the Lord with all sorts of musical instruments. They sang to him a new song, verse 3. Their, their song was always fresh because his mercies are new every morning. It's sort of the way you come on Sunday morning and you hear a hymn or a song that you've sung so many times. And, and, and yet, when you're singing it, it seems new to you. Not because the music is new to you, not because the words are new to you, but because God's mercies are new every morning. And for those people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, they're able to sing old songs as if they were new songs. Doesn't mean we don't introduce new music. It just means we recognize that a heart filled with the Holy Spirit is able to freshly rejoice in the songs that we sing. In that sense, true praise is always new praise. It's never stale. And so David is clearly overwhelmed with gratitude toward God who saved him. And he wants us to be overwhelmed as well. Why else would he write these words? He charges us to delight in and rejoice in and be happy in the Lord. Now, we're not given any specific details about the events surrounding Psalm 33 and the writing of this particular psalm. Maybe that's on purpose. Maybe it's so. We would recognize that our circumstances don't finally matter. What matters is simply that God is Lord. 
He has declared us righteous in Christ. He's written a psalm for the righteous, and the result is always joyful praise. And verse 1 ends, praise befits the upright. That is a word I never use, befits, but that's what the Bible says. Praise befits the upright. It is, it is fitting we rejoice. It's appropriate, altogether appropriate for us to praise God regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the year that we want to throw into the trash can. Praise befits the upright regardless of the circumstances. And this praise is not obligatory, right? No one is forcing us to rejoice. This praise is not done out of duty. We don't come begrudgingly. No, praise, joy, is a piece of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. God has gifted you with joy. It comes from God. And in that sense, the Holy Spirit, whom we just read, would be sent in the Gospel of John, that Holy Spirit who now fills you, now leads you to rejoice. He leads you to praise. Praise befits the upright. And so you, you put all of this together, recognizing, of course, that, that, that David is writing not merely to an individual, but to the saints of Israel. You put this all together, and you see the nature of joy is the free, the public, the musical the beautiful declaration of God in Christ our Lord. Praise is the free, public, musical, and beautiful declaration. God in Christ is our God. That's the nature of joy. One of the highlights for me of 2020 has been a small group of men and women who have arrived early week after week, sometimes for about, I don't know how many weeks now, I don't want to remember, but for several weeks, uh, playing their instruments and singing their songs to a camera alone, practicing the music to help lead us in corporate worship. And if you're a Christian, you know that their ministry enriches our lives, right? Their songs, the songs that they have practiced to play, their songs pave the road of our hearts to exercise joy so that we can stand in those pews with our bulletins open and we can sing freely in no small part because of the effort they have putting in unpaid volunteers setting aside their time to help lead us to shout for joy in the Lord. Be thankful for them. Express your thanks to God for them. I mean, really, this year, I, I want to say almost more than, more than any year of my Christian life, I have appreciated the singing of God's praises. I am so thankful for the encouragement that you give me as I preach the Bible to you and, and other preachers. I see you encouraging us. I want you to encourage them. I want you to encourage people in the sound booth who are helping us hear the music, those playing the music, 
Those who are passing out bulletins, congregation, be an encouragement to them because we have biblical mandates to shout for joy to the Lord, and it's done with the help of others. Do not merely prize the preaching of the Word of God. That would be a, a horrible thing to do. But prize the singing of the Word of God as well. A biblical part of our corporate worship. God's Spirit. And I think that we appreciate this as we head into 2021 in a way that perhaps we didn't heading into 2020. God's Spirit works uniquely when God's people gather together to sing His praises. That singing should never be separated from the preaching of the Word of God. But God's Spirit works uniquely and powerfully when His people gather together with one mind and one heart and one spirit to sing to Him about who He is and what He has done. And all of this is laid out for us in Psalm 33. Now, the sooner we are all in the same room, the better. But recognize this, that this gathering is necessary for our spiritual welfare. Because when we gather together, spiritual warfare is taking place as we shout for joy to the Lord. I prayed for brothers and sisters in Pakistan a few minutes ago. Do you recognize that there are brothers and sisters in Pakistan who in 2020 are genuinely facing persecution via radical Muslims who are shouting for joy to the Lord? Not because of their circumstances, but because of their God. Brothers and sisters, I know it's been a hard year. Your schedules have been disrupted. Isolation has been suffocating for some of you watching online, feeling isolated because, in fact, you are isolated. It's suffocating. Many of you have lost friends and loved ones. The church schedule that you've come to know and, and appreciate has been upended. There is much to lament. But James is right. Count it all joy. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your face develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Joy is the blood-bought response to God who calls us His own. The nature of joy is free, public, musical, beautiful declaration that God in Christ is our God, the nature of joy. All right, second, the object of joy. What is joy in? Our joy is in God. Look at verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, he puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage, 
The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their, their deeds. So David explains in, in, in these verses why God is so amazing, why he is worth rejoicing in, right? Don't settle for generic joy. Bland joy. I'll be home for Christmas joy. Right? Our joy is not in the season. Our joy is in God. And we must get this right for our joy to be anything other than a distraction from a difficult world. We must get God right for our joy to last. If you add too much water to concrete, the foundation will never set. It will not be strong enough to support your house. If you get God wrong, if your knowledge of Him is small or thin or shallow, you will have no reliable foundation for your joy. Your joy will be as weak and as useless as soupy cement. We are a people who love joy. But the only way to find joy is to know God. And so the vast majority of Psalm 33 is David unpacking to a people who must have known the nuts and bolts facts of what he was sharing with them in Psalm 33, and yet he told them anyway. Because there is no joy in God without a genuine knowledge of God. So we need to learn what David wants us to know here about God. For example, God is our good God. Look again at verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, in those verses, David doesn't use the word good, but certainly that's the point. Right? God's word is upright. It's noble, righteous, reliable. His word is good because, of course, God is good. And because he is good, his works are good as well. Right? His upright word, his upright word leads to faithful works. What God says and what God does are never in conflict. He never makes a promise he won't keep. Right? Think back to 2020. Anybody here make a promise in 2020 you have not yet kept? I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I, I know you have. Our words and our actions do not align. God is not like that. His upright word always leads to his faithful works. God never speaks a word of encouragement that isn't true. His very words bring life because God is good. And David says that God's goodness overflows. Look at verse 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. In other words, it's not merely that God loves righteousness and justice. It's not merely that. There's more to it than that. 
God's love for righteousness, for justice, what we might summarize as his steadfast love, his love for righteousness and justice, again, which David seems to describe there as his steadfast love, that love fills the earth. How? How does God's steadfast love fill the earth? I mean, I want to see that. How does that happen? God's love fills the earth because God's covenant people fill the earth. David reigned over a kingdom established by God to be a lighthouse for the nations. Israel was to be a visible sign to a watching world, a vision of God's holiness and of God's love and of God's goodness. To the extent that God gifted Israel to the world, his steadfast love filled the world. The nations were to to peek in and to see something of Israel and Israel's king and Israel's laws, and they were to see something in all of that of the goodness and the love of God. They were to be jealous of the God of Israel. They were to long for Israel's God to be their God because the steadfast love of the Lord fills the earth as Israel lives out its divine mandate to be a people called by God on the earth. And today, God's steadfast love fills the earth even more because churches are spread throughout the world. I mean, just this morning, praying together for churches in Fujairah, praying this morning for a little house church in Central Asia, praying for churches in Pakistan. That's God's steadfast love filling the earth because churches are spread throughout the nations. Now, instead of Israel being one lighthouse that the entire world was going to look at in order to see the steadfast love, now God, scattering his people, has deposited lighthouses throughout the whole planet so that in every block, in every country, there might be a place where God's word is preached and God's praises are sung. Each church testifying publicly, verbally and joyfully to God's mercy and grace. A church is a gathering of redeemed sinners who love righteousness and justice just as our God loves righteousness and justice. As we demonstrate a love for righteousness and justice, the steadfast love of the Lord is on display in our own lives. We are not to be led by greed. That's why we're to be so free, giving things up. That we're not to show favoritism. It's why you don't get a position of leadership in a, in a biblical church because of your job out in the marketplace or your position of authority that you might have in the world or because of how much money you give. We're not to show favoritism. We're not to discriminate on the basis of our country of origin, our color, our socioeconomic status. Every local church is to be filled with men and women who love righteousness, who love justice, like their God who saved them. 
And churches have failed at this. And in the history of Mount Vernon, founded in 1959, we have failed in parts at this. But our failure does not shipwreck God's plan to display his steadfast love in all the earth through churches like ours because our God is good and we are to be walking pictures of his goodness. It's why Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. 2021, right around the corner. What will you do next year to be a visible picture of God's steadfast love? Not the person next to you, but if you're a Christian, what practically will you do as a citizen of God's kingdom? And for many of you as members of Mount Vernon Baptist Church, what will you do to be a visible picture of God's steadfast love, which his word promises fills the earth? Not only is God good, David tells us that God is our creator God. Look at verse 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Now, do you remember, do you remember Job? Uh, blameless and upright, fearing God, shunning evil. But eventually Job had it. And he eventually started speaking back to God. God whom alone is creator. And so God rebukes Job in chapter 38 by asking Job this question. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? So, so God identified himself as creator to Job in order to shut Job up. In order to shut his lips, God said, like, where were you when I made this all? Implied answer, like, you didn't exist. You're nothing. So shut up. But in Psalm 33, David reminds us the same theological truth. God is creator, but he does it to open our lips so that we shout for joy. Like, same truth, different purpose. We're to remember that our God is creator so that we will loudly rejoice in him. God made the heavens, David says, with a word. He simply spoke. God didn't need a hammer. God didn't need a blueprint. God didn't need a shovel. He just spoke. And with the breath of his lungs, everything that exists came into existence. He made everything. Verse 7 says he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. What is the scariest thing on earth? For generations, the answer to that question has been the seas, has been the oceans. It's deep, large, cold, uncharted, and in many ways unknown. And so if there's something on the earth, at least historically, that scares us, and today still scares me, it will be found under the water. But God gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. 
God puts the deep into storehouses, right? The creator, he, he builds with the seas the way we build with Legos. He is in control of it, of it all. He fashions them as he sees fit. And, and all this is there to lead us to praise. Because when you realize God made everything, when you understand that everything exists by God's creative power, when you see God's steadfast love overflowing in this amazing, unwarranted act of creation, when you realize all of this, you will obey. Verse 8, fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of him. God is our creator, God. I want to end 2020 with big thoughts of God and little thoughts of myself. I want to end 2020 realizing Jesus is not a good luck charm, but the creator himself. Hebrews 1-2 says, Jesus is the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus was not created. He was never created. Don't leave Christmas confused. To call him the only begotten Son of God is not to say he was created by God. No, Jesus is God. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That baby born in Bethlehem is God incarnate. God in the flesh. All the creative power of God packed into that little baby. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Jesus, this Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. God is creator. I wish I had better answers to COVID, to racial conflict, to political problems. I don't have answers outside of the gospel. But this much I know, the universe is being upheld right now by the creative power of Jesus Christ. That I know for sure. And that I will keep proclaiming. God is our creator God. He's not merely our good God. He's not merely our creator God, but he is our sovereign God. Look at verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. So, in other words, because sometimes we get lost in the poetry. In other words, God is not a creator who set the world in motion and then went to the back of the kitchen and started eating a sandwich, stopping paying any attention to this world that he had just made. No, God is involved in his creation. God is sovereign over his creation. God is I pause because what I'm about to say is difficult for so many people to hear. It is difficult to hear if you know real suffering. It is difficult to hear if you are empathetic 
and you see suffering in the world, and you know it ought not be that way. And yet, Psalm 33, and frankly, the entire Bible, tell us that God is intimately involved with the smallest details of his created order. I know this raises many questions about God and about his relationship with evil and with suffering. We must affirm what Scripture affirms. God is not the author of evil. James 1.13, 1 John 1.5, 1 Corinthians 14.33, to name just a few passages. Sin and suffering are in the world because of the conscious rebellion of fallen people. But to be biblical, we must affirm verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. Right? God does merely, God does more than merely observe what happens. God affects change. God is not a listener enjoying the symphony. God is the conductor of the symphony. God is in control, and his decisions bring the counsel, the wisdom, the plans, the machinations, the operations, the decisions of the nations to nothing, to smithereens. Like, and if any generation should know this, it should be a generation today that believes in God. Right? No one was prepared for 2020. No nation stocked up on ventilators or face masks. Frankly, the leading nation of the world almost ran out of toilet paper. I'm not an engineer. I don't think it's that hard to make. We nearly ran out. No restaurant had plans to become takeout only. Right? COVID-19 frustrated our plans, and not just our plans. And this is every time I think about this, I'm, just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm staggered by the thought, not just our plans, but the plans of every nation on the planet. Biblically speaking, it was not COVID that frustrated our plans. It was God. God frustrated our plans. Listen to Isaiah 46, verse 10. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I will do it. Now, if God can bring a bird of prey, Babylon, from the east in 586 B.C., to lay waste to Jerusalem. He can bring a novel coronavirus from Wuhan in 2020. Why would God purpose such a thing? Why would God allow such a thing? Why would he allow this virus to wreak so much havoc, ending the lives of of well over a million people and disrupting the lives of billions. Am I overspeaking here? Have not billions of lives been disrupted by a virus you and I have never seen? Like, we can't even see it. 
Billions of lives disrupted. Perhaps to get our attention. Perhaps to prepare us for the day of judgment. Right, if a thousand sermons isn't going to do it, maybe one tiny little virus is enough to prepare one of you for the day of judgment. Luke tells us in chapter 13 how one day, while Jesus was teaching, he addressed a current event, an event which had taken place that basically everybody knew about. A tower in Siloam had fallen down, killing 18 unsuspecting passers-by. Now, many assumed that this tower fell on these unsuspecting passers-by because of some evil that they had done. This was tit-for-tat theology. And when they approached Jesus to ask him explain what transgressions had been committed by these now-deceased walkers, they expected Jesus to affirm their assumption that somehow they deserved this untimely, because wouldn't that make it all the more simple? They expected Jesus to confirm their suspicions. However, without denying that all of those passers-by were in fact sinful, Jesus did not say why the tower collapsed. He didn't blame the builder. He didn't blame it on the sin of those who died. Jesus did teach that the falling of that tower should be a sign to everyone still living. Jesus said, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In that sense, God purposed the falling of the tower to warn a generation of people of God's coming judgment so they could see the toppling of those bricks and get a small taste of the disorder of Judgment Day. I can't tell you why 2020 happened any more than I can tell you why the tower of Siloam fell down, but I can say this. COVID-19 has grabbed the attention of the entire world. Not since World War II have the eyes of the whole planet been captivated by one singular event. Not a single nation is unaffected. COVID-19 has our attention, but because I believe in the sovereignty of God, because I believe God brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, my question to you is, does God have your attention? Like, what is it going to take if not this? Friends, I don't know what the next few decades of my life are, but I'm not expecting another global pandemic. Sure, there could be something worse right around the corner, but if this doesn't get your attention. What in the world will? The damage done by COVID-19 is nothing compared to the fallout on the Day of Judgment when the Lord returns and lays all of our hearts bare. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready to meet your good, sovereign Creator? He has purposed all things, including your presence, this December 27th morning, to hear me preach the gospel to you today. The great news that God made you to know Him and to love Him and to enjoy Him, God made you for that purpose. 
He made you to delight in Him. Like Psalm 33, those first three verses are just to be the, 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 the heartbeat of your life. That's why God made you. But the reason you struggle so deeply to have joy is because you are a fallen sinner who loves the wrong things. You, in your flesh, desire the wrong things. And that's not just like a bummer. It's sin. And because of that sin, you deserve everlasting death and judgment. But God, in his steadfast love, sent Jesus into the world so that Jesus could live in your place. So that he could live a perfect life. So that when he died on that cross, he was able to do what no one else could ever do, which is die in the place of others. Right? If you are stumbling into Mount Vernon Highway, I can, with all of my great speed and strength, push you out of the way of a moving bus. Maybe once, and then I die, and I've saved one person. I'm not God. Jesus, God in the flesh, when he died on that cross, was able to push the entire church away from the moving bus, absorbing the impact of the wrath of God himself. Right? That's the gospel. That's, that's the good news. And to not be saved from that moving bus is to bear the brunt of God's horrible wrath forever. And so a, a global pandemic, whatever its cause, is a reason for us to say, now you too repent, or you likewise will one day perish. The nature of joy. The object of joy is God, our good, sovereign creator. Third, the source of joy. Where is joy from? Look at verse 16. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him. Because we trust in his holy name, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. So, David ends his psalm by calling us to trust in God's holy name. And isn't that what prayer is? It's, it's, it's trusting that God is good. Like, let, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us. He's calling us to, to pray. God, shower us with your steadfast love. Trust in God's good. Trust in God wants to fill us with that. And David presents this trust as the source of our joy. It's not enough to know God is God. It is not enough to know intellectually God is God. This is a theologically astute congregation. Hour-long sermons, week after week, will do that. Who's ever left standing is sure to know something more about God. It is not enough to know more about God. It's not enough. We have to trust in God. 
That's why I say that, that, that trust is the source of joy. The knowledge of God merely will not bring you joy. The, nevil, the devil is knowledgeable about God. The devil knows about God. The devil knows God is good. The devil knows God created everything. The devil knows even that God is sovereign, but the devil does not rejoice in that truth. Why not? Because the devil doesn't trust the Lord. Doesn't trust him, doesn't rely upon him, doesn't lean into him, doesn't have faith in him. Trust is the source of joy. No trust, no joy. We see it in verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Why is our heart glad in him? How can we joyfully wait for the Lord? The answer is at the end of verse 21. Because we trust in his holy name. There is no joy or gladness without trust in God. No trust, no joy. And to trust in God, you cannot trust in anything or anyone else. So I think David wrote Psalm 33, the same David who, as a young man, stood up against Goliath. And what did David trust in when he faced that giant of a man? Think back to Sunday school class. What did David trust in? 1 Samuel 17, verse 45. David tells this to Goliath. You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. But I come to you with a tank. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. David went to battle trusting in the name of God. He refused to put his faith in a horse or in an army or a chariot or a shield. He didn't even put his hope in that slingshot. He trusted in the name of the Lord of hosts. And David never forgot that day. Verse 16, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Where are you tempted to turn for rescue this morning? As 2020 wraps up, what are you trusting in? 2021 can't save you. It is just a year like other years. 2021 will have its own share of sorrows. I guarantee it. Don't put your hope in 2021. Sorry, guys. A vaccine can't save you. And I say this as someone who plans to take the vaccine as soon as I can. Judge me all you want. Vaccine can't save you. Any good that vaccine will do is temporary. A vaccine will not cure my soul. My hope cannot be in Pfizer or Moderna or any other company along the way. I love Mount Vernon. I love this church. I miss us being together so much. This church can't save you. I hope you've come to love the local church in 2020. I hope those of you not with us are lamenting that you are not with us today. 
I hope you have seen how central God intended the local church to be in the lives of believers. I hope you've seen the statistics that basically the only population in America not struggling with depression in increasing rates are those Christians who have somehow been able to gather in the midst of this global pandemic. But the church can't save you. The church is not our savior. Your family, your family cannot save you. Your family that many of you did not see this Christmas cannot save you. We are especially thankful for family during this year when we can't see them. It's tempting during this season to think that family is more important than anything, but we must not look to our parents or our kids or our grandkids for hope. Your family is a false hope for salvation. Your work can't save you. Your work may be the best part of your life, the place that you find affirmation and encouragement, a sense of accomplishment. But at the end of your life, when your strength fails you and it will fail you, you will not turn to your work. Your work cannot rescue you from that feeling in the pit of your stomach that you were put here to do more than work. Don't trust your work. Psalm 33 is one psalm in book one, 41 psalms total. And these 41 chapters all have one theme. Each psalm in the first book of the book here makes the point that God alone is worthy of your trust, of your faith, and of your confidence. That is a the theme of book one. Each psalm in this long book tells you why God, the object of our joy, is worthy of our trust. Let me show you. Psalm 1, God knows the way of the righteous. God knows the way of the righteous. Psalm 2, God laughs at those who would resist him. Psalm 3, God is a shield about us. Psalm 4, God makes us dwell in safety. Psalm 5, God does not delight in wickedness. Psalm 6, God accepts our prayers. Listens. Psalm 7, God saves the upright in heart. Psalm 8, God's name is majestic in all the earth. Psalm 9, God makes the wicked perish. Psalm 10, God is king forever. Psalm 11, God is righteous and loves righteous deeds. Psalm 12, God guards us from our enemies. Psalm 13, God deals bountifully with us. Psalm 14, God looks for those who seek him. Psalm 15, God is to be feared. Psalm 16, God is our chosen portion. Psalm 17, God answers his people. Psalm 18, God is our rock and fortress. Psalm 19, God is our redeemer. Psalm 20, God saves his anointed. Psalm 21, God's salvation is glorious. Psalm 22, God is holy. Psalm 23, God is our shepherd. 
Psalm 24, God is strong and mighty. Psalm 25, God is good and upright. Psalm 26, God is full of steadfast love. Psalm 27, God is our light and salvation. Psalm 28, God is the strength of his people. Psalm 29, God sits enthroned as king forever. Psalm 30, God turns mourning into dancing. Psalm 31, God is our God. Psalm 32, which Jesse preached on the first day of our quarantine, God forgives. Psalm 33, God is our good and sovereign creator God. Psalm 34, God is near the brokenhearted. Psalm 35, God delivers the poor. Psalm 36, God is full of steadfast love. Psalm 37, God is a stronghold in times of trouble. Psalm 38, God is our salvation. Psalm 39, God is our hope. Psalm 40, God is our help. Psalm 41, the last psalm in book one, God delights in us. What is the appropriate response to these truths about God? Fear Him, hope in Him, love Him, trust Him. Psalm 33, 18, Behold, the eyes of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Only God has the power to save you. Only God in Christ purely delights in you. Everyone else in your life, to some sinful degree, delight in you for what you can give them. Only God delights in you because of Christ for who you now are. You can trust him. Yesterday, I read the uh, obituary of a man by the name of George Blake. He died, uh, I think he was 98, uh, old, old man. And uh, George Blake uh, was notorious for being a double agent during the Cold War. So, <clears throat> imagine James Bond working for the Kremlin, and you have real-life George Blake. George passed along literally thousands of documents right to the Soviets, and because of those documents, many died, and millions and millions of dollars were lost. For nearly a decade, Blake did this work. He was captured in 1961, and a judge sentenced him to prison for, in the British system, what was remarkable, 42 years. Now, he escaped in 1966. He fled to the Soviet Union, and he lived the rest of his life in a wooden dacha outside of Moscow, going by his new name, Georgi Ivanovich Bechter. He lived to the end of his life, a traitor to the West, but a hero to the old Soviet guard. Now, in 2012, a Russian newspaper came and interviewed George Blake, and George Blake told that reporter that he had no regrets about anything that he had done, and he said this, I do not believe in life after death. As soon as our brain stops receiving blood, we go, and after that, there will be nothing. He said, no punishment for the bad things you did, 
no rewards for the utterly wonderful. George Blake put his faith in a Soviet Union that didn't even outlast him. And George Blake, and, and I don't mean this in any way to be snarky, it's nothing to make light of. George Blake knows better now. I'm here to tell you that the nature of joy is free, public, musical, beautiful declarations that God in Christ is our God. I'm here to tell you that God is the object of our joy, our good, sovereign, creator God. I'm here to tell you that you will never have real, lasting joy unless you put your faith in Jesus Christ, who went to the cross for traitors, traitors like you and me. George Blake said, after that, there will be nothing. He couldn't be more wrong. After this, after all of this, every believer will feast, as we're about to sing, in the house of Zion. Not as a prize for what we did, but as an undeserved reward for what Christ did. As we head into 2021, may you rejoice more deeply than ever before. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is upright, and your works, which are faithful. You are our good God. We thank you that you are creator, that you are sovereign, a worthy object of all of our trust, which is the source of our joy. Father, we pray for those in this room who might not genuinely know you, even as we joyfully sing this final song. May their heart's desire be to lean into Christ in a way they never have before. We love you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.